We're going to be in Ephesians 2 today. I have a pretty good sense of direction. Like most people, I occasionally get lost. Like most men, I don't ask for directions when I do get lost. I have a good sense of direction, but I don't always display good sense. <clears throat> but one day I was on a lake, it's a big lake, 68,000 acres of water. I was returning to camp from a spot maybe 10 miles to the south. We were running, and we had a long straight run ahead of us, and I was looking down, putting lures back in a tackle box, and untangling all the kinds of things that get tangled when you're in a fishing boat. But I would look up every once in a while, make sure I was going the right direction. I fished that lake since 1964, uh, but I've never seen either end of it, because it's really a big lake. But I know the center fairly well, and yet, as we were headed north, throttle wide open, one of those times when I looked up, nothing looked familiar. Absolutely nothing. I looked right, and then I looked left. I surveyed the waters around me, but I couldn't figure out where I was. And there's some dangerous reefs in that lake, and I knew I was headed towards one of them, so it momentarily unnerved me. I was thinking about that this week, and then I came across the story of a woman named Mary McLaurin. Uh, compared to her, my story's nothing. She goes through that all the time. She has a rare condition called developmental topographical disorientation, or DDT. That's a fancy way of saying that Mary is incapable of forming a mental map or image of her surroundings. She just can't see them. You know, I say it's rare, but my wife displays some of those symptoms. <laughs> She just doesn't have trouble with north and south. She has trouble with left and right. So, honey, turn left. You'll see her go, yeah. <laughs> People with, uh, with DDT, they have no internal compass. You can turn them around twice, and they'll be lost. Mary McLaurin was out of town. She was staying with some friends, and she decided to take their dog, Otis, for a walk. She went about two blocks with Otis, and then when she turned to go back, she realized she had no idea which way to go. She was completely lost. The adrenaline started pumping. She began perspiring. Nothing looked familiar. It was as if, if she'd been dropped in the middle of a foreign land. She hadn't written down the address of the house where she was staying, so she couldn't even ask people for directions. Fortunately, someone f saw that she was having trouble and led her back to the house. When you don't know where you are, you won't know how to get where you're going. That day in the boat, when I looked up and didn't know where I was, I felt momentarily anxious, even though I had a map and a compass and knew how to use them. A map and a compass are wonderful tools, but they're not all that helpful if you don't know where you are on the map. The Bible is to a Jesus follower what a map and a compass are to a a wilderness trekker. We'll be talking about practical ways the Bible can help us follow Jesus. Knowing how to orient yourself by the Bible is priceless. But just as in my case on the lake, if you don't know where you are, having a Bible, even reading a Bible, isn't going to be all that practical. I think that's the situation in which many Christians find themselves. Maybe some of us. They come to church, they like being with people, they enjoy the music, they appreciate the sermon. 
They take part in the Bible memorization discipline. Even look at the Bible during the week, but they don't feel like it's helping very much. And, and they may be right, it might not be helping very much. And, and that could be because they don't know how to, to approach the Bible. Many people use the Bible in ways that actually hurt. But the problem may also be that they don't know where they are. They have a perfectly good map. They don't know where they are on it. One of the most practical things we can do is find out where we are. And I want to help us with that today. We need to know where we are, and we need to know when we are. Nothing could be more practical. Now, imagine you're coming home from vacation. You've been out east. You're trying to get back to cold water, and you're lost. You pull into a rest area. There's a map on the wall. You scour the map. You're looking for that little you are here arrow. And finally, you see it. You've wandered into Pennsylvania. You're about 50 miles southwest of Harrisburg, about eight miles north of the Maryland state line. That's Now, my wife is trying to picture that in her head right now, and she has no idea where that is. But some of you do. That's all you'd need to know under normal circumstances. But what if the circumstances aren't normal? Knowing where you are might not be enough. You might also need to know when you are. What if the weekend is the biggest Civil War reenactment in the nation and the largest venue in the nation with a concert by the most popular country band in the world? You probably wouldn't want to be passing through Gettysburg, PA that weekend. We need to know where we are in space and where we are in time. So let's get out our map, see if we can find the you are here arrow. This is Ephesians 2. I want to read the first five verses. As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins, or trespasses might be a more accurate rendering, and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions or in trespasses. It is by grace you have been saved. We're calling this series Down to Earth, and so far we've asked the questions, why and who? Why are we here? Who's in charge? Today we add the question, where? Where are we? We'll get to the how questions. How do we benefit from the Bible? How do we pray? How do we get the most out of church? How do we deal with destructive behaviors and difficult people? We're going to get to those, but the answers won't really make sense until we know why, who, and where. As we look at this text, it's helpful to remember that the Bible writers did not divide their work up into chapters and verses. Chapter and verse numbers weren't added for about 1,500 years by historical standards, not that long ago. I mean, they were a brilliant idea, and they're enormously helpful, but occasionally they obstruct our view. I think that happens between Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. In chapter 1, Paul presented this vast, glorious picture of the crucified Jesus, raised from the dead and exalted over every power that exercises authority in the whole cosmos. And there are many such powers. In verse 21, Paul describes them as rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given. 
some of these powers, both human and non-human, are in rebellion. But God has strategically positioned the Messiah Jesus over all of them. And yet for the time being, the rebellion continues. That is the biblical writer's view of the world. Their unsettling answer to the question, where are we, is this, we're in a war zone. Chapter 2 opens in the context of a cosmos in rebellion, full of rulers and authorities, powers and dominions, but with Jesus strategically positioned above them all. Paul's readers, the you of verse 1, were Gentiles born under these powers and subject to them. While they lived under the dominion of these hostile powers, they were dead to God and his rule. And for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. They were, verse 2, following the ways of the world. A literal translation is more like you formerly walked in accordance with the age of this world. You walked, one of Paul's favorite metaphors for the Christian life, you walked, that is, you did life, you carried on, just like everyone else living in a realm that doesn't acknowledge God's authority. We were born in a war zone, and that's bad enough. But to make matters worse, we were born on the wrong side. You ever look around and wonder why there's so much rubble everywhere? There's the wreckage of bombed out marriages, children injured, spouses dead to each other. There's the debris of damaged race relationships. That's no accident. The communication lines, the connections between people of different races have been a strategic target for centuries. God, the Bible tells us, made humans, male and female, so they could become one. But in what was the first strike of the rebellion, the powers and principalities drove a wedge between them. And that has been a continuing strategy to reap discord through pride and domination and deceit. We live in a war zone. And it shapes the way we think about everything. Most people have believed the propaganda of the principalities and powers and assume that there's no other way to live. This is just the way it is. Sometimes you have to do wrong in order to make things come out right. I recently saw a picture of children playing in the streets of a city ravaged by war. I think it was somewhere in Syria. Missiles had demolished buildings. The roads had been gouged by bombs. The city was full of rubble. And yet children played soccer in the shadow of a tottering building. Moms made supper. Boys and girls fell in love. Life went on. But it went on in a war zone. I think that's analogous to our situation. And we've come to think of it as normal. We were born in disputed territory under the sway of a tyrant that will tell any lie and do anything to stay in power. That's where we are. Where are we? We're in enemy-held territory. On the wrong side. 
We need to know where we are in space, but also where we are in time. Where we are, also when we are. So when are we? We are between D-Day and VJ Day. We are between Gettysburg and Appomattox. And in case those historical references don't make it with you, we live between the turning point and the victory, between the decisive battle and the tyrant's final defeat. We live between the cross and the return of the king. So here's what we need to grasp. We were, along with the entire human family, born on the wrong side and therefore in the gravest danger. See, God is going to sweep away the rebellion, and when he does, humanity is in danger of being swept away with it. That's what Paul had in mind in verse 3 when he says that we were by nature objects of wrath, by nature. But because God, verse 4, who is rich in mercy doesn't want to destroy people. He carried out a perilous mission to rescue civilians. Prior to the final offensive, which is coming, he entered enemy territory to save us. He did this even though we didn't recognize his authority. Even though our heads were filled with the enemy's propaganda, he did this. That's mercy. That's what God is like. Even though we were on the wrong side, dead to God and trespassing in his territory. This is verse 5. He made us alive with Christ and he rescued us by grace. Then he seated us in heavenly places with Christ. Verse 6. We've been accepted by the king. We've been admitted into his domain, his dominion. We Christians have switched sides and it's not because we were so smart. We could see what was coming. No, it's not that. It's not because we were so moral. But because God in his mercy came on a rescue mission to save those trapped behind enemy lines. That's what it means to say we're saved by grace. We didn't merit God's help. And he didn't need ours. He wasn't responding to our overtures when he sent Christ. There weren't any. He came to our rescue and he did so even when we were aligned with the enemy. He demonstrated that he was for us before we were ever for him. And he did so while we were his enemies. I know you're aware of the growing anti-immigrant sentiment in our country. Maybe even share it. And not just our country, but around the world. And I kind of understand where that's coming from. But I also remember that we are immigrants in the kingdom of God. Every one of us. We are not here by right. We are not here by race. We are not here by our ingenuity. No one has ever slipped into the kingdom of God surreptitiously. The borders are absolutely secure. We are here for one reason and one reason only. We were invited. We were granted amnesty, given citizenship, and all because Jesus died for us. We are all charity cases. You're a charity case, and so am I. We've got nothing to boast about but our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We were in submission to the enemy when God took the initiative and reached out to us. He sent messages by prophets and apostles and then by his own son. Change your mind, they said. That's what the word repent means. Change your mind. Come over to God's side. He will forgive your offenses and take you in. And many of us believed that good news and we came over to his side. That wasn't meritorious on our part. It would be blameworthy on our part were we to ignore and reject the one who died for us. I've alluded already to the enemy's propaganda. His propaganda machine makes the Nazi propaganda of the Second World War look like child's play. Herr Goebbels looked like a rank amateur. His propaganda is nonstop, psychologically sophisticated, strategically brilliant campaign. It's not laid out in terms of months or even years, but in terms of millennia. Yet it is constantly adapting to cultural influences. And people are taken in. They don't see another way to live. But, but God has a propaganda plan as well. It's sitting in these chairs. He's already saved us from the storm that's coming. The storm that comes when he launches the final operation. When he invades, we will be protected because he's marked us as his own. He's justified us. He has rescued us from the coming wrath. That's how St. Paul puts it, looking forward to that day. But here's the thing we need to understand. We were not only behind enemy lines when God saved us. We still are. God didn't extract us. That wasn't the plan. He kept us here as his agents. We are part of Operation Reconciliation. And now we begin to understand why we're where we are. It's through us, as it was once through prophets and apostles, that God is extending the message of grace and forgiveness to people who are on the wrong side. It's through us that he's extending amnesty to our neighbors and the people we work with and go to school with and with whom we do life. He's inviting them to join his side through us. The good works he's strategically prepared for us to do as his agents. That's verse 10 in Ephesians 2, the verse we talked about two weeks ago. We're designed to cause the people around us to rethink what they know about God. See, the propaganda has taught them mostly not to think about God at all. And when they do, to think of him incorrectly. But God has prepared these good works for us to do to help people rethink what they've heard about him, to come over to his side, to glorify him. Through our lives, ones of peace, confidence, love, God intends to display a different way, a better way to be in this world. Through you and me, his agents, Today we're answering the question, where are we? One answer to that question is, we are behind enemy lines. 
laying the necessary groundwork, the good works prepared in advance for us to do. We're laying the necessary groundwork for the return of the king. There are other ways to answer that question. We can, for example, locate ourselves in Christ. Where are we? We're in Christ. That phrase is so theologically rich and complex that it would take a long time to, exp- to explicate it. But in one sense, it's like saying, we're in Company C, 3rd Battalion, Reconciliation Brigade. We're not here to get rich. We're not here to get comfortable. We're not here to get respect. We're here to serve the king. Let me give you one other biblical way we can answer that question. Where are we? It's the counterpart to the answer that I've been giving, that we're in enemy territory. But we need to remember it precisely because we are in enemy territory. Where are we? We are in God's hands. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. That's where we are. We're in a war zone. We're behind enemy lines. But by God, we are safe in his hands. Now let's pray. Oh God, Your son said that even the elect were in danger of being deceived, except for your grace. Keep us, Lord, from being deceived, seeing the world in ways that are not true, accepting what we hear about the world and what's important and what's valuable and what we're doing here. Lord, help us to find ourselves in your word as your people for the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen.